Amen. At this point in the narrative of Numbers, we have been witnessing the rise of a new generation of Israelites. This is what the book of Numbers is telling you from chapters 1 and following. The old generation that had been rebelling against Israel was now dying off over the subsequent 40 years after that judgment pronounced in Numbers 13 and 14. We are now in the 40th year of their wandering. In Numbers 27, that 40th year has been there for a few chapters already, but we are seeing now the culmination of an entire season of judgment and wandering in the wilderness. The time has now drawn near where God will make good on the promises. He will grant fulfillment and inheritance to the people of Israel. The Exodus generation, with some exceptions, has died out. Now, what exceptions? This is what we have to think about. Who came out with that Exodus generation that would still be alive? Well, we notice here in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, there's one name, because okay, so we know Moses has not died. In fact, he won't die in this book. He dies before the conquest, he, uh, but it uh, won't be until Deuteronomy 34 when his death is told. So Moses, he's alive. Two others that came out but did not die in the wilderness, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb, these are two figures that we've seen in earlier stories who demonstrate faith, trust in the Lord, and an inheritance will be theirs. Now the story we're going to read tonight is about the succession of Moses by Joshua. And Moses has not died, so it's not as if Moses is going to be buried in this chapter and then Joshua is the man. Instead, we see a structure of the story, though, that reminds us of an earlier succession. There are pairs of characters that are like succession stories. Now, you can think in the New Testament, probably the most famous succession story is how the ministry of John the Baptist points forward to Jesus when John the Baptist says, he must become greater, I must become less. Jesus was given a forerunner. The one to prepare the way was John the Baptist. You can think in the Old Testament about Elijah and Elisha. That would be another pair of stories. They were alive at the same time, but Elijah's ministry would give way to an even more powerful ministry that Elisha would have. Um, When we look at Moses and Joshua, we are reading about an early succession story. It's found in these early books of the Old Testament, the first five called the Pentateuch or the Torah. And these books of Moses, the Torah, contain the succession of Moses' ministry by Joshua. These would not be easy shoes to fill. Moses arrives in Exodus. His shadow looms over Leviticus. He gives further instructions and narratives with his character in Numbers. He doesn't die until the end of Deuteronomy. Most of the opening books of the Old Testament have Moses alive. Joshua would have huge shoes to fill, if you will, because of the grandeur of Moses' ministry and authority. Now, we're told in verses 12 to 14 uh, that God's going to command Moses to ascend a mountain. I brought up um, those earlier successions, but I should mention this one as well, the high priesthood. We have seen a succession already take place. Do you remember it? Aaron has died, and his son Eliezer has taken his place. Israel has a new high priest, but it is not Moses' brother anymore. And in that story from Numbers 20... They went on a mountain, God announced Aaron's death ahead of time, and then Aaron would be succeeded by the appointed successor. The passage tonight seems to be structured similarly. There's some instruction, go up on a mountain. 
Here's the appointment of your successor. Where the earlier story with Aaron's death differs with our story tonight, Moses doesn't die. In Numbers 27, that is. He does not die. This is to tell you what is to come. In Joshua, we read, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, arise and take the land. Cross the Jordan River and get going. We are awaiting the fulfillment of what is being prepared in our passage tonight. So this is a passage of preparation for succession. And in verses 12 to 14, the command is that Moses go up on a mountain to see the promised land. Here's the way this sounds. Verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I've given to the people of Israel. We must remember not only when we are, it's the 40th year of their wilderness wandering, but where are the Israelites? On the map, on the Bible map, they would be east of the Jordan River in the land of Moab. This particular mountain range, the mountain of Abarim, this is a series of mountains in Moab. We will know a particular peak that will be named within this group of mountains in the Moabite territory. Here's what we're told in Deuteronomy. So I'm going to peek forward into Deuteronomy 32, 48. Moses is told, go up this mountain of the Abarim, okay, we've heard that word, to Mount Nebo. So Mount Nebo is the place in the range of mountains where Moses will die. We're told there in Deuteronomy 32, it's in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, therefore on the other side of the Jordan, and then he's to view the land of Canaan. In verse 12, Mount Nebo will be the place in the mountainous area of Abarim that he goes. Now, what's the purpose? Moses go up on a mountain. Moses has gone up on mountains before. It seems like quite a bit at this point. He's 120 years old, and God says, I need you to start climbing. I go up on a mountain, and uh, what am I going to climb now at 120 years old? Now, back when Moses was 80 years old, Moses ascended Mount Sinai and received the glorious commandments of the Most High God. An incredible time of Moses' life. Forty years later, he's told, I want you to go up on a mountain and see the land I've given the people Israel. I want you to notice, though, he doesn't go up on a mountain in verse 12. I mean, not in verse, he doesn't in verse 12. He doesn't go up on a mountain in chapter 27. This will be a prophecy here that he is to fulfill. Here is an expectation the Lord has pronounced. The fulfillment of this word will not happen until the end of Deuteronomy. You will not see Moses going up on a mountain and seeing the land and dying in Numbers. He's just told in Numbers that's what's going to happen. In Mount Nebo, in the area of the Abarim, in, Mount, in uh, the land of Moab. And then I want you to see the land, he says, that I've given to the people of Israel. Well, here's the benefit of going up on a mountain. You can see for a long way. And Moses, on Mount Nebo, is able to see onto the western side of the Jordan River, the land of Canaan. The land that Abraham was told, this shall be yours and your offspring, and you will dwell there, your offspring, your many seed, like stars of the heavens, like dust of the earth, they shall be numbered. In verse 12, Moses is denied entrance into the promised land, and we'll reflect again on why. But he's told, before you die, go up on a mountain, and I want you to know that land is there. I want you to see it. I want it to be in the vision of your mind. Because even though you will not enter it, you will behold the faithfulness of the Lord to give the inheritance of the land to the people. 
We're told in Deuteronomy that Moses pled with the Lord to see the land. This is a little bit of information that we can, I think, read backward now from Deuteronomy 3 into our passage. In Deuteronomy 3.23, Moses recounts, I pleaded with the Lord. O Lord God, you've only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. Now what you don't have in Numbers is Moses pleading with the Lord to go. We simply know of Moses being forbidden to now go into the land and he will die after ascending a mountain to see the land. It's in Deuteronomy where he tells us, I really pleaded with the Lord. And I said, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country. But the Lord said to me, Moses says, do not speak to me of this matter again. In other words, there would be no reconsideration, no negotiation for Moses to go over to that land. The Lord had spoken and Moses needs to humbly receive that difficult word. So in Deuteronomy 3, he says, I, I pled with the Lord. Will you please let me go into the land? He had come so far and for so long. We can see why Moses would plead with the Lord. And yet the answer would be no. Moses would receive that answer and have to humbly receive it. If we go back to our passage tonight in Numbers 27, 13, he says, When you've seen it, you shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. This is how we know Numbers is not giving you the fulfillment of what's promised. You don't get the fulfillment until Deuteronomy. Moses dies in Deuteronomy 34, the very last chapter of the Pentateuch, of the Torah. He dies in the last chapter of Deuteronomy and is gathered to his people and we're reminded of Aaron. As your brother Aaron was. See, Aaron in Numbers 20 went up on a mountain and he died there. Moses is going to go up on a mountain. He's going to die there and he will be gathered to his people. We should not assume because of Aaron's death or because of Moses' death outside the land that either of them were unbelievers. They trusted in the Lord and looked to God. They followed the Lord, even if imperfectly so. Their hearts followed the Lord. They were going to be gathered to those that cloud of witnesses at death. But why was Moses forbidden to enter the land? Let's remind ourselves with verse 14 what had happened. Why is it that you will be gathered to the people when you see the land and not cross it? Verse 14, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. The verbal idea of failing to uphold me, that's not what the congregation did. Moses failed to uphold the Lord as holy before the eyes of the congregation. That language is clear as a a breach of faith in Numbers 20 committed by Moses. The background to that was Moses' sister Miriam had died. And the Israelites were once again complaining about not having any water. And in Numbers 20, the Lord was going to miraculously provide. And the Lord said to Moses to take the staff and to speak to the rock. But instead of speaking to the rock from which God would miraculously provide sustenance for the people. Moses struck the rock twice in anger. 
He did not uphold the Lord as holy. He demonstrated a lack of self-control. And as the leader for the people of Israel, that carries with it very profound consequences. We find out in Numbers chapter 20 that God's statement to Moses is, you will not cross over the land. And while Moses has led the people and been a leader faithful over the house of Israel, Moses' death would be before the mighty conquest of Canaan. And we're reminded there in verse 14 that the congregation quarreled, but Moses uh, failed to uphold me as holy. Yes, the congregation acted the way they shouldn't have. It did not justify Moses then acting the way he shouldn't have. And because of his position as the prophet of Israel and a leader and shepherd of the people, his actions carried with, uh, with them grave consequences. He would therefore be gathered to his people. Not until Deuteronomy 34 does it happen, but we're reminded in verse 14 of the episode in Numbers that brought it about. At the end of Numbers 27, 14, these are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Yes, Numbers 20 was the background. All right, so that's the lead up to this. This is uh, uh, leading into Moses' request. We've seen God's command to ascend the mountain for these reasons. Because you're going to die, Moses, you won't get the land. What's Moses' request now in verses 15 through 17? Verses 15 through 17 is his request that is that a successor be chosen. And I, and I like that we notice Moses here deferring to the Lord's judgment about who this should be. Moses does not take on the responsibility himself. Let me look among all the tents and among all the tribes. I'll find the right person. Don't you worry, Yahweh. Instead, he prays, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. There is a successor who will be needed. We mean here the one who will follow after Moses and lead the Israelites into Canaan. And he calls here the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh. Now that's a title, isn't it? That's only used one other time in the Old Testament, and it's in Numbers 16.22, where he's the God of the spirits of all flesh. I think it's a title meant to convey God's sovereignty over all people. All right, so the thing about the language here. He's the God, not just of some of the spirits of those of the flesh on the earth, not just of some image bearers, but he is God over every single person. Moses, that's not true of Moses, but God is the one who is God over all flesh. So let the one who has that kind of sovereignty, that kind of scope of jurisdiction, let the one who is God of the spirits of all flesh, that one should appoint a man. That one should appoint a man. I think that Moses then is deferring to the Lord because the Lord is sovereign over all. Let you, Lord, appoint a man over the congregation of Israel. This person who will be the successor of Moses has responsibilities to lead. In verse 17, the leadership language sounds like this. The one who shall go out before them and come in before them. Something a leader would do. Going out... And coming in before them as well. Who shall lead them out and bring them in? This means movement from one location to the next. Like a shepherd with sheep. In fact, this is tied to the image of shepherding in Psalms and in the prophets. That a shepherd is the one who goes before the sheep. And leads them in. And leads them out. 
He is a leader because of his role to guide and to protect, to lead into into, uh, solid uh, territories where food and water would be plenty, to take care of them into good pasture. Um, Just as the people of Israel could say with David, the Lord is my shepherd, they could still say at a micro level, Joshua is our shepherd. The one who would lead us, who would go out and come in, the one who would bring them out and in. Leading the people. Not only is this appropriate for leadership of the Israelites, it even has a layer of royalty to it. And the reason I want to add this component is because shepherding a people and shepherding a nation are uh, historical and metaphorical realities that are pressed by the psalmists and prophets. You could think of King David, for instance, as a shepherd of the people of Israel. And yes, he grew up shepherding sheep. We don't mean literal sheep anymore. We mean he became the shepherd of the Israelites to lead them, to lead them as they went out and lead them as they came in as their king. This language, 2 Samuel 5, the tribes of Israel came to David and they said, we're your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, they said to David, it was you, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. It was you, you shall shepherd the people Israel and be prince over Israel. Going out and coming in, leading out and bringing in, shepherding, kingly leadership. Joshua is not a king. I don't think we should understand, oh wait, is Joshua the first king of Israel? No, this language though does foreshadow that Israel needs a leader for them. Moses would be succeeded by Joshua. Joshua would die and be succeeded by well, no, no, let's think for a second. Joshua dies at the end of the book that bears his name. And the book after Joshua is Judges. And we're told in Judges, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So leadership to coalesce the nation is actually really important. And there was not some major successor that followed on the heels of Joshua. And the book of Judges demonstrates the spiritual deterioration that could follow. And therefore setting up the need of the monarchy. I think we could see Joshua as a kind of foreshadowing of this. Certainly not a king himself, but with the language of leading and bringing in, of going out and coming in, all of this is preparing the way for a king. Joshua is foreshadowing it. Now, we're told here in chapter 27, uh, in verse 17, that they shall be a congregation that are not as sheep that have no shepherd. Again, shepherd language now explicit, not only implied. Sheep that have no shepherd. That's not a situation we want. So let's have a successor so that the Israelites aren't like sheep without a shepherd. If we think for a moment, now it's, I don't have frequent dealings with sheep. So I'm just going to say to you, in my very rare occasions in dealing with sheep, I've not been very impressed. And so, and maybe that's the same experience you've had as well. And I would realize how important it is for sheep to be protected, for sheep to be faithfully led, for them to be kept in places where they can have good pasture. Because left to themselves, left to themselves, they're not going to do very well very long. That, that is, some of you are like, yep, because you have more dealings with sheep than I do. And this here in chapter 27 envisions a congregation that ought not be left to themselves for very long. They need a successor. 
Now that language of needing a shepherd is something picked up by later in 1 Kings 22. In 1 Kings 22, there's a prophet who says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And that's in the days of the monarchy of Israel. Meaning, they don't have the shepherd they really need. Who's the king who will come to be the good shepherd they need? The prophets lament about this. The prophets in Ezekiel 34, they say the people of Israel were scattered because there wasn't a shepherd and they became food for the beasts. God says, my sheep were scattered and they wandered over the mountains and over the face of the earth with none to search and seek for them. Who will come as a shepherd to search for the sheep? To gather them into one fold and to be the good shepherd to lead them. The Old Testament holds out the disaster in the wake for those who are sheep without a shepherd. They need a shepherd. And Moses will be succeeded by Joshua. And Joshua will serve in a way as this shepherd pattern. But you know where I'm going with this. We've done enough of numbers already, enough of the Old Testament together as a congregation. We know that what we need is Jesus. He will be the good shepherd for his people. And that Joshua will be a type or foreshadowing of this one to come who will be Christ the King. Look at God's appointment in verses 18 to 21. Verses 18 to 21, the Lord says to Moses, here's the name, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. I think we can conclude that this is a believing Israelite whose words and actions are empowered by the very Holy Spirit himself, a man who is doing the work of God for the glory of God. And we know a few things about Joshua. Here's what we know. We know that Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim. We know in Exodus 17, the first time Joshua is mentioned in the whole Bible He's in a military skirmish at the bottom of a mountain fighting the Amalekites with the Israelites. And Moses is in the top of the mountain, another mountain that Moses is on. And he's got a staff raised and people on either side demonstrating the authority of God over the battle. And the Amalekites are defeated with Joshua's leadership. We see in Exodus 24, Moses has an assistant named Joshua. Same guy. So Joshua has been in service to the ministry, the prophetic ministry and leadership that Moses has had for these decades. Joshua is not new to the area. In other words, God doesn't say, take Joshua the son of Nun and Moses say, who? (laughs) He knows exactly who this is. He's known Joshua for decades. They've spent the whole wilderness together. And in Numbers 13 to 14, in the very book we've been camping out in, In Numbers 13 to 14, Joshua was one of the 12 spies to spy out the land of Canaan. And the good news is that when those spies came back, Joshua had a good report. The majority of the spies disagreed, but Joshua was a believing speaker. And he said, let's go at once and take the land. He and Caleb were ready to go. Caleb may have been the one to say that actually, but the two of them together of the same mind to trust the Lord. What do we know about Joshua? In Exodus And in Numbers, what we know of Joshua is that this is a man who believes what God says and is ready to do what God says to do. Sounds like a good leader to follow Moses. Now, this procedure is supposed to work like this in verse 18. Lay your hand on him. Make him stand in verse 19 before Eliezer the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. Uh, So this is going to be public. It's not like Moses is going to invite Joshua over for coffee and say, now when we leave this place, you just need to understand this about yourself now. Instead, they're going to have a public ceremony. 
And this public ceremony or commissioning is to, if you will, be the public passing of the torch. Even though Moses is not dead, it's to communicate visually for the people that Moses, he has led us. And now, by all accounts, we are to understand Joshua will be the new Moses. Joshua will be the new Moses. So take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, lay your hand on him and make him stand before Eliezer, the priest. And not just any priest, he's the high priest, in fact. Eliezer is Aaron's son, the one who came down the mountain after his father died, dressed in all the regalia and the uh, high priestly vestments. In verse 19, not only before Eliezer the priest, the whole congregation. Now the Israelites number in the many thousands, and so you can imagine the scope of such a group. We probably mean here the largest group you can muster to witness this. Let it be known publicly. The congregation is to witness. You shall commission him in their sight. In numbers, we don't know what words are said. But perhaps they would be similar to the words that are reported in Deuteronomy. So I want to give you an example here. What if what we see reported as having happened is what sounded like this? Deuteronomy 31.7. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Later in Deuteronomy 31, we're told in verse 23, the Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. If we were to ask, all right, if Joshua is going to be commissioned and Moses is going to say these things, what is it that he might say? Things like this. Assurance of the presence and power of God and the success of Joshua's endeavors by the Spirit of God. Deuteronomy 31, I think, gives us some inkling of what that would mean. In verse 20 of our passage tonight, do you notice this? You shall invest him with some of your authority. Hmm. And then in verse 21, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, okay, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord? Now, what I want to notice here in verses 20 and 21 is something that might initially feel unexpected. While Joshua will be a new Moses, he doesn't quite operate with the same authority and access to God that Moses did. Something is different. So verse 20 says, you shall invest him with some of your authority. And that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey him. So this is authority that needs to be heeded. You know, but Moses isn't dead. Not until the end of Deuteronomy. And he is to have some kind of authority. Yes, invest him with some of your authority. And in verse 21, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest who shall inquire for him. Now, one of the roles of the high priest that we get from Exodus is to discern the will of the Lord with something called the Urim and the Thummim. This is strange. These terms are not used often in the Old Testament. But they do occur in priestly contexts. And they seem to be some sort of surface, flat surfaced or colored stones that a kind of question by the high priest could be asked of the Lord... And these stones perhaps cast 
for an answer to be discerned. This is not because this is how people should discern the will of the Lord. This was a unique thing given at a particular period in Israel's history to one particular office, the high priest. In other words, this is not like the example the Israelites would take up and all of the people would go to the local marketplace and every family have a couple of the Urim and the Thummim to figure out what to do on different occasions. That's not what's happening. Instead, and in all seriousness, the high priest would discern the will of the Lord by this God-given instruction in the symbolism of the Urim and Thummim. Here the Urim is mentioned in verse 21, and it's meant as part of the pair to mention the whole. Now, the high priest inquires, what's different about this compared to Moses? Well, Moses, Moses would go to speak, if you will, in the presence of the Lord and hear from God. And Joshua is not told that that's what it's going to be like for you. Okay, so hmm. So we have a successor, all right, he's a new Moses, but he's not like quite the same in every capacity. Instead, Moses seems to have some particular truths of his life that aren't perfectly patterned in Joshua. Instead, Eliezer the high priest shall inquire of the Lord for Joshua. So Moses in verse 12 can be one who receives the words of God. And then Moses will say to God in verse 15, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man. And then the Lord says to Moses in verse 18, but we are not to expect, because of this verse here in verse 21, that it will always be that way for Joshua. Now, it does seem to be that on occasion you do see that kind of speech. What I mean here is something's different. Something is lesser. I like to call Joshua a new and lesser Moses. <laughs> a new and lesser Moses. In other words, he's a new Moses, but not quite filling up the same mold. It's like if you took Moses' height and marked it at the top, that Joshua is now going to stand where Moses was, but, uh, you know, it's not, the same, it's not quite the same mark. You know, something's a little different, a little lesser. Joshua is a new and lesser Moses. Um, they don't mean that to be offensive toward Joshua, right? We just have to recognize what's being said here and to think about what it means. And then in verse 21, when the high priest gives the word for Joshua, at his word, Joshua's word, they, the Israelites, shall go out. At his word, they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. Therefore, he has some authority to be obeyed. And the priest will convey the word of God. And Joshua is to be recognized as a leader for the people of Israel, their new shepherd, if you will. Verses 22 and 23 is the summary. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before the high priest Eliezer and in front of the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and he commissioned him, probably said some things like I recounted from Deuteronomy 31. He commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. And all that symbolic gesturing and all that ceremony is meant to convey to the people, okay, we've seen transitions. We've seen Aaron be replaced by Eliezer. We've seen a whole wilderness generation die and a new generation rise. And now a new Moses will be given to us as well. Numbers is a book where thresholds are crossed and transitions are made from a generation to the one that follows. Same thing for Moses. Moses will die at 120 years old. Not in this chapter, but the Israelites are prepared that someone else will now lead them. And that's a grand idea for sure. Not an easy thing to replace Moses. 
The ceremony recorded here no doubt means Moses is not now defunct like a lame duck leader. I don't think we should imagine that people say, well, now, Moses, we don't have to listen to a thing you say from here forward. Well, no, the rest of Numbers indicates that's not the case. If you will, they have a kind of co-leadership. Joshua really is vested with some authority. He really will hear from the Lord through the high priest Eliezer. He really is to lead the people. And Moses' death will mean a full embrace and embodiment of that role. This is a succession. And um, what it reminds me of is some things in the New Testament as well. We have to talk about Jesus. You know we do. We have to think about the gospel. Because the succession of John the Baptist to Jesus is key. John the Baptist would have disciples following him. And yet he would point people to those who, were, uh, those who were following him to the one who would be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, his successor. The one who would be the one actually bringing the kingdom and taking away our sin. And they were both alive for a duration of time. Uh, John the Baptist was eventually beheaded. And of course, when Jesus died, he rose again from the dead. That had not happened yet with John the Baptist. At the return of Christ... Uh, John the Baptist will have his head once more. What a grand thing that will be. But, uh, and I mean bodily. So we have here John the Baptist and Jesus, a kind of transition and succession in the Gospels. But I want you to listen to something in the Gospels that evokes Numbers 27 specifically. Not because it's clear that they say, as it was recounted in Numbers, but a particular phrase. A particular phrase that only occurs twice in the Gospels, And in Numbers 27, we see in Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, it says in Matthew 9, 36, he had compassion on them. For they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He sees their need. He sees what is required, what they will most benefit from. In Mark 6, 34, in the scene where he will feed thousands with bread and fish, we're told in Mark 6.34, when he went ashore, he saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Don't let the narrative pass you by quickly. Jesus' response here indicates who he believes he is. If Jesus sees they are like sheep without a shepherd, and he begins to now lead and teach and do something about that, both feeding the crowds and in John's parallel, in John 6, telling them he's the bread of life, Jesus is the shepherd they need. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Christ knows that in the Old Testament, the Israelites had people who led them These were not always leaders the people needed. And sometimes the prophets, if they were false prophets, like some of the true prophets had to deal with, or kings who were unrighteous kings in the northern part or the southern part of the land, these were leaders who were not a blessing to Israel. But Jesus has come to be the shepherd. And he doesn't look at their need and roll his eyes. He is filled with compassion. That's exactly what we would want to be prompted from the heart of the Redeemer. That when he sees that we are helpless and in need of a shepherd because we like sheep have gone astray, what we experience from our Redeemer is his compassion and mercy. Oh, if we could ponder the mercy and compassion in the heart of Christ towards sinners. It would overwhelm us and melt us. 
We have here in the Gospels the recounting of the ministry of Christ. And it would not be lost on the Gospel writers the very phrase they're using. Because Jesus is not a new and lesser Moses. Jesus is the new and better Moses. He is the true and greater Moses and the true and greater Joshua. And the reason I think we need to think about the successor of Moses to Joshua and now the one who would be the greater Moses, Jesus, is because Jesus' name, His name, the word Jesus translates a Greek word, but its Hebrew equivalent, the Hebrew equivalent for the name Jesus is Joshua of all names. It's the same name. But Jesus is a Joshua who's not lesser than Moses. The angel said, you shall call his name Joshua, we might say in the Hebrew. You shall call his name Jesus Joshua, for he will take away the sins of the people. Now, the old Joshua couldn't do that. That was not part of his resume. That was not part of what his job description would entail. He would lead the people into the promised land, but better deliverance, greater inheritance, a greater exodus was needed. A new Joshua was needed. The old Joshua would not suffice. That Joshua would in himself still be forward pointing to the one who would be a greater Moses, not a lesser. Whose very name, Joshua, means Yahweh is salvation. When the angel says to Mary, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. That's what his name means. Christ lives out most truly and gloriously the very meaning of his name. The book of Numbers continues to point the way. Joshua receives authority from Moses. No earthly figure ever gave the Lord Jesus any authority. Here is the one by whom and for whom all things were made. Jesus is the one with authority over heaven and earth, he says in Matthew 28. Oh yes, with the Lord Jesus, we don't have another new and lesser Moses. We have one who is greater. One who surpasses all who have come before. And what he has come to make known, the very Father himself. That he would reconcile sinners, living up to what his very name means. Yahweh is salvation. Friends, when we look at a story like tonight, we see what seems like a basic succession story. The Israelites have gone through many deaths throughout this wilderness. Moses' death will be among them before Deuteronomy is over. But God's plan is to continue leading the people because God's plan doesn't stop with Moses and it won't stop with Joshua's death. It won't stop in the darkness of the judges period. It won't stop when David dies. It's heading all the way to the Lord Jesus, the true and greater Moses and the one whose very name Joshua means salvation. We can rejoice in that. That helps us to see the faithfulness of the Lord from generation to generation and the goodness of the one whose name saves. Praise the Lord. Let's, let's pray together.